The majority of people in the U.S. want to live in a walkable neighborhood, but only 8% do. This makes people happier. This makes people healthier. This is the best thing that we can do for the environment is get more people in walkable neighborhoods. So for a variety of reasons, this is something that has big tailwinds. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, we're excited to welcome Ryan Johnson to the show. Ryan is the co-founder and CEO of Cul-de-Sac. Cul-de-Sac's mission is to build the first car-free city in the U.S., and the company's well on its way to doing so with their new cul-de-sac neighborhood in Tempe, Arizona. After raising $30 million in a Series A funding, cul-de-sac is on track to open its 17-acre neighborhood with accommodations for 1,000 residents this year. And they've already begun the plans for expanding to other cities across the country. Before co-founding Cul-de-Sac with friends from college, Ryan turned down MIT and dropped out of Harvard Business School to join the founders of Opendoor, which is where Ryan and I first met. And he co-founded Cul-de-Sac in 2018 and quickly created partnerships with companies like Lyft, Envoy, and Bird Scooters to help make his dream a reality. Today, we're going to be talking to Ryan about what our cities are missing, finding funding for a project of this scale, and just who's going to be living in cul-de-sac Tempe. Ryan, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Excited to be here. Awesome. So can you start by talking a little bit about your background and what was the spark that led you to found cul-de-sac? Yeah, I can. I'm a third-generation Phoenician, and I've always been interested in real estate and transportation. My grandpa was a mechanical engineer designing train systems. And when I was 14 years old, I made a basic HTML website showing an ambitious plan for rail lines in Maricopa County. And we called it RapidTran, the modern system. And I never lost my fascination with transit. For undergrad, I went to U of A on a scholarship that sent our class to Budapest, where I saw that there was a different way of living with density and walkability and great transportation. And that inspired me to improve cities. At U of A, I met Eric Wu, who's been on your podcast, and we pulled together our scholarship money and used that as the seed capital to build a real estate business of 60 bedrooms. And I also studied the bus system in Chile. I did a Fulbright studying the bus system in Brazil, and I worked with trains, helicopters, and buses, including for the New York City subway. And I saw ways to make cities better, but struggled with how to make it happen. And after working in transportation for a decade, I then joined Eric again at Open Door. And Open Door worked because it handled an operationally complex capital-intensive business, which enabled it to deliver a great end-to-end customer experience. In the data at Open Door, I saw that people wanted homes that were walkable, but there weren't enough. The majority of people in the U.S. want to live in a walkable neighborhood, but only 8% do. And the mismatch is because we stopped building walkable neighborhoods with the advent of the car. But Jeff and I realized that with all the innovation and mobility, we could build walkable neighborhoods in the U.S. again, and they would thrive. And so we started building cul-de-sac. That's awesome. And as our most ardent listeners will know, Eric will recognize Eric. Eric has been uh, also a guest on the Founder Real Talk podcast, and it's a good reminder we need to have him back. Things are continuing to move right along at Open Door. The company is now public, and the numbers which are public have been pretty miraculous despite the tough stock market. So it must be cool to have been there at the beginning and now you know, growing something else from scratch as well. 
And one of the things you got to get right when you're starting a company is, is think about, you know, if you're going to have co-founders, who you're going to co-found with. And I'm curious, you know, this one you co-founded with Jeff Behrens. Why Jeff? Why was he the right person? And how do you guys work together to complement each other's skill sets? Yeah. So Eric and Jeff were both roommates of mine in college and people that I always wanted to work with. Jeff and I complement each other very well. He has a tremendous amount of experience working on a wide variety of projects, but mainly this is something that we've always talked about doing. He shares my passion for transportation and real estate. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about cul-de-sac and what it means to build a car-free city. It seems like a massive undertaking. So could you give us, when you're asked to describe what is cul-de-sac, paint the picture for us and talk a little bit about the challenges that a cul-de-sac city would help solve and what it's going to feel like to live in a cul-de-sac. Yeah, the vision for cul-de-sac is to build the first car-free city in the U.S. And our slogan is, we build cities for people, not cars. And we're starting with the first car-free neighborhood built from scratch in the U.S., and that's cul-de-sac Tempe. And it's 1,000 residents, so it's 700 apartments and 16,000 square feet of retail. And the residents don't have cars or parking. Instead, they get around by whatever mobility mode is the best for them, We're right on a light rail stop. E-bikes are something that's exploding. Scooters are a big trend. There's also car rental. There's also ride sharing. And so with people not needing parking space, it freed up the design to be something completely different from what we build today. Today in the U.S., we only build two types of housing. There's either suburbs that have a painful commute and are lonely or mid-rise apartment buildings with double-loaded corridors where people generally only walk to and from their car. And those are somehow both lonely and claustrophobic. And instead, we get 55% landscape space. There's not a drop of asphalt. It doesn't have the heat island effect. And we call it life at your front door. It's something where you're more likely to know your neighbors and you feel more connected to the neighborhood. And also that design is very different from what you usually see. It's not a gated community. It actually adds amenities to the area. So not only are our residents not adding traffic to the area, this is also something that's open. There's a central paseo, there's a public park. The retail is open for everyone. And this project is going well. We can talk about it more if you want. And then the vision is to build larger projects. Logistically, you know, maybe you could help people understand how it works. If you don't have cars, you know, even just to move in, right? What if you have, you know, you're going to have some furniture to move in to your cul-de-sac dwelling space. You're going to have groceries to bring in and other essentials. How does that work? without you know, a driveway and an ability to maneuver your car close to where you live. Yeah, so if you can imagine the site, it's, it's 17 acres. It has over 100 buildings. First of all, the central paseo can be used by fire and police in emergencies. There's also spots around the edge that can be used for deliveries, and residents can book a spot where they can have a moving truck come. Our residents are power users of mobility and logistics services, and we make it as good as possible for those companies to operate. We're also partnered with a number of them. Great. Makes sense. When you think about what life is going to be like for the residents in Tempe, in cul-de-sac Tempe, how does their life change? And what are you anticipating as being you know, some of the benefits you think that will accrue to people's lifestyles that maybe aren't immediately obvious from just being in a carless neighborhood? We don't see ourselves as defined by the absence of cars. And in fact, there are cars, right? The, the challenge with cars is that cars have something like a few percentage points of utilization. They mostly sit around parked all day. And instead, our residents have access to cars with bookable 
cars that could be used for weekend trips. They have access to ride sharing when necessary, along with the other mobility modes. The thing that we think defines us is walkability. And we call it life at your front door. And the community is much stronger as a result of people not just going to their car and back. And the design is something that's conducive to knowing your neighbors with shared courtyards. And also the retail gives lots of things on the site. And there are great things that could be accessed nearby. People are happier. People are healthier. This is already the kind of lifestyle that the majority of the U.S. wants. And the problem is that it's too expensive because the areas that are walkable, entire cities like New York and San Francisco or the dense urban cores of other large cities, the prices have just become exorbitant because we're not building enough. Yep. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about cul-de-sac Tempe. It's going to open this year. That must be super exciting for you. When you think about location, how did you guys settle on Tempe and in Arizona as the first iteration? Obviously, this is the state you grew up in, but what about Tempe makes it ideal for your first, not your only, but your first planned city? We chose Tempe for its thriving job market, proximity to transportation, and forward-thinking, action-oriented local government. We're really lucky that it's a forward-looking city. And it has the government that wants to be at the forefront of innovation and moving the needle in real estate and technology. And the collaboration with them has been fantastic. They actually had to pass new legislation to enable us to build something that a lot of people when we started said was impossible, but we needed that that approval to be able to build without residential parking. And it was important for us to find a city that's a perfect fit and aligned with our vision and where we want to take it. Hmm. You know, one thing that I find really interesting and maybe you could elaborate on is the interest you're seeing for both people and retailers to be part of this first cul-de-sac in Tempe. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that is and maybe share with us some of the dynamics and numbers that you're seeing? For example, like, you know, people on the wait list and and getting involved and sight unseen wanting to live in this cul-de-sac and then a little bit about what's happened in retail as well. Yeah, we'll do the residential part and then the retail. So the residential part we see is just validating the demand that we thought was there. And when we announced, it really caught the world at a moment where it's really in the zeitgeist and people are becoming aware of how much better we can build our cities when we build them for people, not cars. During the pandemic, people saw the impact of slow streets and replacing a parking spot with dining in in a place like New York. And lots of people, when they saw this, they saw that this is a place that they would like to go to. And so we saw a huge demand. We had hundreds of people put down deposits to live at cul-de-sac and thousands of people that joined the broader wait list, people that didn't necessarily want to move to Tempe, but were excited for where we're going next. And the demand is real. And this is the kind of housing that we need to build many, many more units of in the US. Wow. I mean, are you aware of people putting down deposits to live in a sight unseen location at this magnitude? I don't know if I've ever heard of anything like that before. So it really must suggest the demand is huge. The demand for this is millions of units, and the the constraint is there's not enough of them built, and we hope to fix that. Awesome. And what are the demographics of the people who are putting their hand up and saying, "Hey, I want to put down a deposit. I want to live here." You know, where are they coming from? What kind of life circumstances are they in that are leading them to the interest that you're seeing? This is for everyone, and we're seeing demand from all types of folks. Some of the demographics are young professionals, empty nesters, and remote workers. Hmm. How about where people are from? Are they coming from near and wide? Are they mostly local? Any surprises there? It's a mix of both lots of folks that are local and also lots of folks that are interested in in moving to Arizona. How about the retail part of this? What have you seen from retailers? You know, any surprises in the level of interest that you've seen 
in this part of the world for your cul-de-sacs? Yeah, so we have 16,000 square feet of retail. There's a restaurant, a coffee shop, a co-working space, a bike store, a small format grocery store, and a dog park. And those are completely leased, which is unusual for a project, with fantastic tenants. As an example, the restaurant isn't just any restaurant, it's a husband-wife couple, and their current restaurant, which is called Bacanora, just was named a James Beard finalist for one of the 11 best new restaurants in the country. Wow. This will be their next restaurant. And those are the kind of tenants that we've been able to attract because people are excited about a place where people are, are part of a community where there's lots of people that live right there without a car. People are excited about being associated with this. Walkability and building better places is something that lots of people want to see happen and be part of. That's so remarkable. You're seeing demand from individuals and from retail. Really incredible. Must be very gratifying for you. Can you talk about like what you think happens in a, obviously people are excited about moving in, but if we take Tempe, you know, which will be your, your first neighborhood or city, if you roll the clock forward a year or two or three, what do you think will emerge as some of the unique aspects of living there and how might other communities learn from or borrow from things they see in a carless neighborhood like this cul-de-sac is going to be? Yeah, so real estate is a stodgy industry. And when, you, when you're doing a new concept, multiple different parties along the way say like, where has this been done before? And that makes it harder. But once a concept is proven successful, then it becomes the benchmark. And already we're seeing lots of people that are interested in developing like this. And we hope that in a way that this inspires people, similar to the Tesla Roadster, for example, this is the best way to build new neighborhoods in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. We hope that it takes off. And meanwhile, our plan is to build larger projects because we can do even more interesting things with urban planning and mobility. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about your plans for other projects, but maybe to drill down a little bit on the customer experience. I think in Tempe, everyone is going to start as a renter. Why'd you make that decision? And do you think ownership will be part of the story for cul-de-sac going forward? Yes, ownership will be part of the story going forward. We chose to make Tempe rentals to build it quicker. Okay. And residents in the Tempe cul-de-sac can expect, you know, several thousand dollars a year in what you're calling mobility benefits as well, which sounds like a pretty interesting perk. Can you talk about what that means and whether it's been a, an allure for people? Yeah, we're the first real estate developer to offer residents a comprehensive mobility package along with their home, and it's worth a few thousand per year in value. We offer a complimentary lift pink, which is 15% off all rides. There's priority airport pickup, relaxed cancellations, et cetera. There's 15% all bird rides. Everyone gets a Valley Metro Platinum Pass so they get unlimited light rail, streetcar, and bus rides. And they also have access to Envoy car share with rates as low as $5 an hour. Wow. Sounds pretty good. I may have to think about checking out uh, cul-de-sac number two. It sounds like cul-de-sac number one is already going to be all leased. But let's talk a little bit about growth. How are you thinking about future developments is the 17-acre format what you'll stick to? Is Arizona the location you're going to stick to? How quickly are you, do you plan to grow these things out? Any, anything you can share about your plans for the future? We don't have anything to announce today, but there's some exciting things in the work. And our plan is not just to rubber stamp this out in Tempe. Our plan is to build larger projects because we can do more with transportation. It sounds like with future cul-de-sacs, you've now got a model from Tempe Will you stick to that model? Are you going to stick to cul-de-sacs nearby in other cities within Arizona only or go farther and wider? 
is 17 acres and a thousand residents the right size for you going forward? Or are you thinking about things in a different way? So it's 17 acres in cul-de-sac Tempe. You can walk from end to end in a few minutes. And so that limits just how much we can do with transportation infrastructure. For example, a bike lane in that scale isn't as big of a game changer as if it were in a larger project. And so by us doing a larger landmass, it lets us do more things like transportation, more landscape space, more walkability, more walkable amenities. And so it really builds on itself in a way that's more than the sum of the parts. I imagine you'll have a wider variety of retail as well in the larger format. Yeah, the more scale naturally would, would create more retail and other amenities as well. More great restaurants, maybe, and maybe a bigger dog park. Yes, definitely a bigger dog park. Awesome. Yeah, I think dogs are really going to like cul-de-sac. <laughs> With so many of the founders that we speak to on Founder Real Talk and that you and I know and invest in, the businesses oftentimes focus either exclusively on technology or technology as it relates to you know a specific brick and mortar or real world issue like Open Door, which we were talking about earlier. Cul-de-sac is different in that there's certainly a technology element to what you're doing, but there's a lot that goes into building a single building, either residential or retail or mixed use, let alone a neighborhood or city. Can you talk about what the process was like? Just sketch out for people, like how long did it take from inception to now having, you know, being within a a few months of fully opening your first cul-de-sac what were some of the key hurdles you needed to get to overcome? I imagine funding is a big issue. Getting the permits is a big issue, the design, and then ultimately driving demand. Just a really big undertaking. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. At Open Door, we thought that that was a large transaction size, but uh, our MVP, so to speak, is quite large. It's a very complex project. And the beginning when we started, people said that two things were impossible that getting permission to build and the demand. And we're now past both of those. The entitlements happened with record speed and the demand has been very strong. COVID was a challenging time because of the the nature of doing construction, but we broke ground in late 2019. We have residents moving in later this year. And then there's other projects that we're starting in parallel. Mm -hmm. Do you think now that you've kind of been through it once, you'll be able to build future cul-de-sacs in quicker fashion? And if so, like where are some of the solves or what are some of the things that you've learned that you can apply to future neighborhood or city builds? So there's definitely learnings in a variety of places, but I would say overall, it's validated that this approach works, that we can get through the various obstacles, that the demand is there and that we can do it successfully. And so from there, there's opportunity in doing larger projects, which is why we're pursuing that. And I would imagine like permitting may get easier once you become a known quantity and can point to success in Tempe and other places in the future, it becomes easier for the next city council to say, yeah, this is a good idea. We want one of these near us. Yeah. Now we have inbounds from all over the country, residents, city councils, et cetera, saying, please build this where we are now that it's a more known entity and people see the benefits of having this in their community. Wow. That's really cool. It strikes me that Arizona is an interesting place to start, right? There's no snowfall. It doesn't rain much. And so in some ways, it's a very hospitable climate for people transporting themselves in something other than a climate-controlled car. Is the cul-de-sac model going to port itself well to cities that have more varied climates? Is that something you've thought about? Yeah. In cities that have 
been built for people instead of cars all over the world of variety of climates, people will bike and thrive. So the constraint is having the right infrastructure, uh, and the right city design, as opposed to the weather. Got it. You know, speaking of infrastructure, you referenced e-bikes earlier. I know, you know, you're a big proponent of e-bikes and you can see them everywhere in cities like San Francisco and New York. What are you seeing with respect to e-bikes and that trend and how important do you think e-bikes will be to the future of cul-de-sac? E-bikes are one of the most important technologies out there, not just for cul-de-sac, but everywhere. It doesn't feel as high tech as, as uh, like an electric car, but it's going to transform our cities because people can replace cars with electric bikes. It's the pi r squared effect. If you can bike five times as far, that means you have 25 times the surface area in your life. And this makes a whole broader set of things now accessible. Plus it can be with as little as zero exercise and people are happier and have more fun commuting when they're on bikes. And so this is a big unlock for us and for a variety of other things. Hmm. Very interesting. Any safety issues that come with, you know, people moving at faster speeds on e-bikes or is that not something you worry too much about? The safety issue is cars and how cars interact with the roads, which is why infrastructure is so important. And uh, we have such a car culture. This is not anti-car culture. This is about people being able to choose the right method for them. And we already have massive latent demand for biking in the U.S. That's even before e-bikes. And e-bikes just take it to another level. When the safe infrastructure is built, cities find that they actually had lots of bikers all along. Got it. I want to shift gears and just ask you a little bit about how you finance the building of a cul-de-sac. You've got a cul-de-sac, I guess, HQ or op, you know the operating company that is cul-de-sac that you've raised, as we mentioned earlier, you know a Series A for. But clearly, that's not financing the build-out of a city. Maybe can you just sketch out how you're funding both the the operating company and and then how you've funded the build out of Tempe and and what the model will look like going forward? Yeah, we have what we call an opco propco structure, and the VC funded part is the opco, and each real estate project is funded separately. So Tempe, for example, is a mixture of real estate equity and real estate debt, and so we have each of these types of fundraises with different demands from the capital partners, but having everything work well together is a key component of the success here. I know your ambitions are grand and you, you want to have, sounds like bigger and a lot of cul-de-sac cities in the future. Do you see capital as a potential limiter or do you think there's lots of capital available for projects of this sort and magnitude? For successful projects, there's near unlimited real estate capital and Walkable housing is what the majority of the U.S. wants. And right now, there's so little of it that it's why it costs you know, a million dollars to get a place in New York. And we can actually build fantastic neighborhoods at a lower cost than even the construction for normal standard single family homes today. And we can build that widely. It's going to bring great housing to the U.S. and it's going to be profitable, which will help it scale. And not to mention all of the other benefits. This makes people happier. This makes people healthier. This is the best thing that we can do for the environment is get more people in walkable neighborhoods. So for a variety of reasons, this is something that has big tailwinds. I'll also share, you know, it's clear, like there's a housing crisis in many, many cities and states in this country in that, you know, the supply demand imbalance, there's just way more demand than there is supply. It's led to dramatic increases in housing prices over the last several years to the point where, in many markets, you know, 
houses are out of reach for even all but the most affluent would-be buyers. You know, it feels to me like more supply is a good thing, and it that's part of what cul-de-sac success offers. So in my mind, that's a, a real nice benefit to you guys flourishing. Yes, and cities are excited to have cul-de-sac there because it adds lots of car-free residents as opposed to residents that just create a traffic problem. And it adds amenities to the neighborhood where it's not a gated community. It has lots of open space, great retail, et cetera. It really feels like potential is strong here. You know, as you think about your the way you've leveraged technology and the way cul-de-sac residents will interact with cul-de-sac, talk about what that experience is going to be like. Is that a digital experience? And is that different at all from the way we think about living in a typical residential experience today? We're delivering an experience people want, a vibrant, walkable lifestyle. And this requires both a physical and a digital component. The physical component is the priority. It's the built environment and the physical services of our neighborhoods. We see technology as an enabler. The purpose of our technology is to enable a great physical experience. We have an app for residents, but most of the software is internal tooling aimed at making the resident experience seamless. And here we draw a lot of inspiration from the best hospitality brands. They don't have any magical consumer-facing app. Their focus is on delivering a high-quality and reliable physical experience. And because of the complexity and scale of our operations in housing, transportation, retail, and other local services, using technology well generates a lot of value. Very cool. You know, look into the crystal ball for us. You know, in three years or three to five years, let's say, when the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or some other major publication is writing a piece on this amazing company called Cul-de-Sac, what's going to be the headline and what is this article going to be focused on? It's going to say Cul-de-Sac and Cul-de-Sac Tempe catalyze the resurgence of building walkable neighborhoods in the U.S. and no longer are walkable neighborhoods exorbitantly priced. Many more people now live in walkable neighborhoods as a result of this one project that showed that we could do it again. That's really cool. Ryan, we're at that part of the episode where we're going to put you on the hot seat and ask some speed round questions. Let's just say the first thing that comes to mind. What book or article would you recommend to founders who have visions as big as, as yours? Walkable City. Oh, sounds very apropos. What advice would you give to a younger Ryan, knowing what you know today? This one's another book rec, and the advice is in the title. It's by Cal Newport. It's Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it's about why building skills trumps blindly following passion. Love it. Okay, last one. We talked about your interest and excitement for e-bikes. For those of us who might be in the market, what's the best brand or how should we go about selecting an e-bike? The biggest advice, I have an article that talks about the 11 rules for buying an e-bike and recommends 11 bikes. The biggest rule is just buy one. Whatever you buy, it will show you a new world. There's so many different choices. The industry is uh, exploding right now. They're already the best-selling electric vehicles. They're far outselling electric cars. This is a trend that has legs. There's a variety of good brands. I actually tell people not to buy on Amazon. Amazon doesn't have the best brands. There's two good ways to buy an e-bike. You go to your local bike store or you buy direct to consumer. Those are different sets of bikes. Either one is a great option. The largest company is Rad Power Bikes, and they have a full line, and they're great bikes. They're sort of in the $1,200 to $2,000 price range. The lowest price bike I recommend is $800. It's electric XP Lite. All right. 
Well, there may be a surge on e-bikes after this episode drops. And I know there's going to be an increase in interest in cul-de-sac. And I know, you know, you've gained a lot of fans. What you're doing is incredibly interesting, Ryan. And not only good for cul-de-sac, but it's going to be good for the world. So my uh, sincere wishes that, you know, you have all the success you hope for. And I'm really looking forward to learning more. Maybe we'll have you back on the show in a couple of years to talk about that Wall Street Journal headline and how far you've come. Yeah, and good being on. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme music is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across social internet, enterprise tech, and smart tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $9.2 billion in capital across the U.S., Canada, China, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, and Israel. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Big Commerce, Grab, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, Zendesk, and many more. The firm has offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Singapore, Shanghai, and Beijing. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital. <laughs>